Fermentis is an expert in the art of fermentation. Fermentis works and supports all breweries in order to make the best beer together. Fermentis offers many fermentation solutions to fit all of your needs. Active dry yeasts, bacterias, fermentation aids, functional products. If you have a fermentation issue, Fermentis obviously has the solution. That's why Fermentis is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. To find out more about Fermentis, check out their website www.fermentis.com or download the Fermentis app available for Android and iOS. That's Fermentis spelt F-E-R-M-E-N-T-I-S. The beer industry has changed a great deal in the last decade. Breweries have come and gone, as have numerous beer styles. But take a step back even further, and you'll see an even bigger picture. Hello, and welcome to the Brewer's Journal podcast. My name is Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewer's Journal. This sector is blessed with certain brewers that have truly made their mark on the field of brewing. They've worked in different breweries, producing different beers, catering for different audiences. And at the end of last year, we celebrated one such figure. The winner of our 2022 Brewer's Choice Brewer of the Year Award has been a pillar of the UK beer scene, creating beer styles and also helping light the way for new breweries and the brewers within. In this week's podcast, recorded live at our Brewers Lectures at North Springwell, Colin Strong, the head brewer of Salt Beer Factory, looked back on 23 years in beer. In doing so, he tracked his career alongside how the industry has evolved in that time, with the breweries, brewers and beer styles he has encountered along the way. Good morning, everyone. No, afternoon, everyone. It's a good start. Um, welcome to Springwell. It's nice to be here with you all. Um, so, well, without further ado, I'll, I'll get on and try not to bore the hell out of you too much. So I'm just going to do a quick talk this morning about this afternoon. Fuck me. Uh, this afternoon <laughs> about uh, my, a, a brief history of sort of my 23 years in brewing and alongside kind of looking at some of the touchstone things that have happened within the industry along the same time. So it's quite wide and varied. So, um, well, you'll see as I go along, I guess. So, uh, hey, so I'm Colin. Um, I was born in Dublin in 1980. So obviously I'm from Ireland originally. Um, for most of my uh, sort of initial brewing, uh, drinking years, I was kind of more obsessed with like Guinness and Harp and Tenants, and they were like my, my real go-tos. And I guess at the time, especially in Ireland, before craft beer was really a thing, um, we had, didn't even have sort of cask or anything sort of that interesting. It was a case of every bar you went to more or less had the same beer zone. You had like Smithix, Harp, Guinness, Smithix, Harp's Guinness, Smithix, Harp, Guinness, down every bar you went in. So the choice was, was really limited. And in those days, we used to just drink to get drunk and it was a bit of a different thing, I guess. But I'm, I'm really happy to say that sort of in, in the years subsiding, we, we, the industry has like really changed. We've really opened up and hope, you know, re really sort of changed what beer is as a, a cultural thing and what the meaning of beer is to people to much more than just going out on a Friday night and getting sloshed after work. 
Um, I uh, moved to England in 1998. Uh, I was pursued a career as an architect originally. Um, that went pretty badly, as you can tell. Uh, I lasted three years on the course and I, I really wasn't enjoying it. But when I dropped out, um, I got a, a job in a brew pub and I was just kind of help, helping out in the bar, but that's kind of where my story in brewing begins, really. So, yeah. So, in um, the year 2000, I, I was working in a brew pub, just helping out in the bar at the time, and uh, it was a Liverpool brewing company, which was on Berry Street in Liverpool. At the time, um, the beer scene was kind of limited, like a cast beer was kind of still something that was very much been drunk, but also very much controlled by bigger sort of family-sized breweries, and there, there weren't so many sort of smaller pubs going around, uh, smaller breweries, sorry, going around at the time that were kind of making anything uh, a bit more interesting and a bit more out there. Um, and I literally, when I took the job at the brewery, I was completely starting from scratch. I had never homebrewed. I didn't, honestly, if you'd lined up malt hops and yeast in front of me, I don't think I'd be able to tell you which was which. Um, I, I, I was very much a person who drank to get drunk, like I said, and, and it, it was a real learning curve to kind of go in and start actually getting involved in those things and working with the materials and really figuring out sort of how they came together and the things that I liked and didn't like about it. Um, so at the time, the brewery, we were brewing maybe sort of twice a week. Um, they were, would have been 1,600 liter batches. Uh, we had five pubs in, in the small brew group that, where the brewery was, um, and we were basically just making, making beers for those pubs, but the majority was sold through where I worked. There was a lot of cleaning involved. That was essentially, I had to fulfill my role and, and kind of justify me getting paid for doing five days a week. So I, I'd work two days on the bar, kind of helping out, and then do my other three days in the brewery. We had a, a brass kettle at the time, which was a bit of a novelty and looked really nice, but it meant one day a month I had to polish that fucking thing with Brasso. And for a few days after, my arm would be like that. I wouldn't be able to put it down because of the cramp in my muscles just from standing there like that for hours on end. But it was a really good learning curve. Um, I, I worked with, when I first started, I, I was learning from the guy who'd been brewing there for a little while. But then a guy, uh, Steve McCormack, who had worked at Witchwood Brewery previously, was in the city. His wife was doing her master's at Liverpool University. And he essentially came in two days a week just to help out, but kind of to teach me to brew, really. And, and really, that's where my true interest in beer really, really started. At the time, we were brewing sort of very traditional ales, as obviously we'd always kind of done at that brewery. Um, but also through, uh, obviously, his experience at Witchwood, they were brewing much more kind of trad ales. And there wasn't really a lot of sort of innovation going on there, but we did sort of play around with different recipes and play around with different styles. Um, we did a cask lager once, that was particularly unpopular, but there we go. Um, I remember distinctly sort of our hopping rates were maybe, we were adding 100 to 200 grams per liter, per hectoliter, sorry, of hops to, to the brew up oil end, and very, very traditional, very, very straightforward beers. But it's really what ignited my passion for, for doing what, what I'm doing now. After that, I moved on to Marble Beers in Manchester. Um, it, it wasn't a direct choice. I'd, I'd kind of decided, actually, at, at the end of my time at Liverpool, I'd, I'd started to develop a bit of a problem with one of my knees, my back was hurting a bit, and kind of lugging stuff around. I thought, oh man, brewing, brewing stuff's just lifting a lot. So I'd kind of backed out and I'd gone back to university. But whilst I was at university, we'd uh, made a trip to the Marble Arch Pub in Manchester. 
and somewhat conveniently for me, they like let all of their staff go a couple of weeks previously and were looking for new hires. So I went in there just to, just to kind of help out on the bar initially. But then uh, I met uh, James, who was uh, James Campbell, sorry, who was head brewer there at the time, um, and kind of wormed my way into sort of doing one or two days a week with them in the brew house, and then also just kind of helping out when there was holiday cover and things as well. But I think I think that was really kind of the biggest point, the, the biggest touchstone of kind of me really, really falling in love with beer uh, and the process of making it. James obviously now has uh, just opened Sure Shop Brewery down in Manchester. I think just approaching their first year was head brewer at Cloudwater and. Yeah, quite a quite a name in the industry, I think, and he, he he's the one I can really sort of credit with uh, with really in, in, inciting my love of it. Um, I remember also this while I was at Marble, it was probably the first time I'd come across the word craft beer being mentioned about something that we were doing. I, I remember distinctly having discussion with uh, Jan, who owned the, the brewery at the time, and she was like, "I hate that term. It's horrible. It just sounds like knitting and crochet." But you know. What did she know? Um, so initially when I started at Marble, we were brewing organic beers. So everything was through the Soil Association. It did mean that our kind of supplies, uh, suppliers were limited. Our, the mold things we could use were limited. The, the hop suppliers we could use were limited. Um, so so we, we worked kind of within a parameter, but it was always our mission to kind of go through that and, and make the best beers that we possibly could. Um, it was the first time I'd really come across sort of blending hops in a beer and using sort of three and four different varieties to, to kind of get, get the flavors out. But also sort of when we we're developing recipes or developing sort of long-term recipes, how we could best manage sort of changing hops in and out to make sure that we were finding the, the right blend for us and that, that the flavor was kind of matched up. And that, that, that was a, a lesson that has really stuck with me for a long time. Um, later on, we kind of started moving into non-organic beers. We were maybe doing half and half organic and non-organic. And that was a real game changer as well in terms of sort of the accessibility to hops was a lot easier. The price of hops was a lot more favorable, um, but also the flavors that we could actually access at that point. And that again was another sort of touchstone that really sort of made us look forward and, and look at the possibilities of what we could do with the beers we were making. Um, alongside this, working with the guys who I was working with there, there was myself and James, Later, uh, Dominic Driscoll came and worked with us. He'd been running bars in Manchester and had decided he wanted to get into brewing and he came on with us, um, initially suggesting that what the kids really wanted was a pound of 140 miles um, because that, that's what he really saw as the touchstone. But through the three of us working together, we exposed each other to a lot of different beer styles where I used to come in and bring them some really boring stuff and I'd be bringing them like Irish Reds and things I'd really enjoyed that were kind of out there for me and you know the, the brews I'd made in the past. Um, but James would bring in things like Dreyfontein and Goers. Um, Dom like, really fell into love with the American IPAs and things. And that's really where, where, where those sort of styles first came onto my radar really. And then we started as well working, um, looking at sort of German lagers and, and the, the sort of the, the real sort of clean classic styles like that. And then again, sort of moving on and really sort of looking into beers that, like where we'd had sort of exposure to the Gozes, we were then starting to mess around a little bit with Britannomyces and wild yeast to sort of give us, that really sort of opened the palette of, of what was possible, what we do. Also my time at Marble, I came across like my first collaboration beers, uh, kind of doing one-off special releases, which we did, did very infrequently, like maybe we'd do three or four a year. Um, but, but again, it was a chance for the three of us to kind of sit down and really sort of bang our heads together. 
and again used the sort of experience of the different styles we tried along the way to, to actually increase the palette of the, of the types of things that we were making and the things that we really wanted to make. And alongside that, we kind of, I think we might have been the, one of the first breweries in the UK who did like sort of a 750 release of, uh, we did a, the first year did a Imperial Stout, second year we did an Imperial Stout and a barley wine. And then we started doing some barrel aging versions of those things as well. So that was real sort of a look at where we were dealing with a very, very small mash tun. I, I can't express how small in compared to the brew length the mash tun was. Uh, so when we wanted to do anything over 5%, it was generally double mashes. But again, these things all kind of opened our eyes to sort of the possibilities of what was available and what we could do with, with the kit we had. So in, in the wider world of brewing around this time, in 2000, when I started at uh, Liverpool Brewing Company, there were give or take 500 breweries in the UK. When I started with Marble in 2002, 2003, there were about just over 500. I think it was 4, 4, 493 in 2002, 506, I think in 2003. One of the biggest things that impacted us along the way at this point was in 2002, Progressive Beer Duty came in in the UK. You're probably all too young to remember, but before this, essentially all small breweries would have to pay the same duty as your Carlsbergs or your Heinekens. We were paying, paying the same price per liter as they would have to for their, for their um, duty lines. When the progressive beer duty came in, it was on a sliding scale. It meant that the tax on smaller breweries was lowered. And I think this really contributed to sort of the growth of the cast beer and craft beer market in the UK. Um, I think breweries at the, around this time, like the, on, the, on the wider look at sort of breweries around us, um, there was much more sort of looking abroad for inspiration. Um, so this meant that more regularly people were turning out sort of Belgian or American style IPAs, pale ales, um, doubles and triples. So, and sort of the start of some of the sour beers that would become sort of more of a feature in the UK brewing scene later on. Um, so around this time as well, so some of the sort of bigger breweries who became real touchstones for the industry and since and still are going strong would have come, come to be. So in 2005, Thornbridge Brewery opened at Bakewell. Um, we then had sort of a, as a sign that sort of, that sort of wider beer tastes were being more acknowledged. Um, Rake Bar then opened in 2006, which was one of the first bars in the UK really selling beers after North Bar, sorry. Um, <laughs> North Bar would have been the first, what we would now term a craft beer bar in the UK, really, that was selling things that weren't controlled by the brewery it was buying from, and they had like a real open palate to do things, and really tried to do something different. Similarly, Rake Bar then, 2006. Um, Brewdog then did their first brews in 2007. Colonel Brewery opened 2009. Um, the first Brewdog Bar opened 2009 as well, which again was sort of, a lot of people, I think, wondered whether it was sustainable for a, a, a brewery to open a, a smallish bar that was selling just their products that wasn't the tap room without having mainstream products on board. Even at the Marble Arch, whilst we were there, we had 10 hand pulls. Eight of those would usually be marble beers, but we still had Carlsberg and Guinness and whatnot on, on the end of the bar. And I think these, the opening of sort of like uh, Rake and North Bar and Houston Tap after that as well in 2009 really meant that the, proved that people could actually go and take that step further and not have to rely on the big breweries to kind of get people in the doors. And then again, uh, yeah, 
first Rudo Bar 2009 and then Craft Beer Co. sort of opened their doors in 2011 as well. I think that this really started to show that people were starting to look away from the mainstream and looking for something a bit more interesting in their drinks. So then, 2011, uh, I, we up sticks, me and my now wife and girlfriend, uh, we uh, up sticks and decided that we were going to have a little jaunt up to Scotland for a while. Um, I took my first head brewer's job, which was at Black Owl Brewery. Um, I don't know if any of you, like, a lot of people started to go on about sort of fine ales and fine fest, and because that's a big touchstone and a you know, place that people go to. Black Isle's like that, but almost like taken more into the wilderness <laughs> again. It's uh, in, in the middle of the Scottish Highlands, like 12 miles outside Inverness, and like a real oasis. I, I really recommend, if you can have a holiday in that way, try and go and see the brewery, try and go and visit those guys. They're doing some wonderful things up there. Um, as, as my first role of, as head brewer, um, I was in charge of recipe creation, stock management. Uh, I had my first experience of a barrel aging program. We were, for our eyes, in the ideal place to do it. We were right in the middle of the Highlands. We had a lot of uh, big distilleries around us. So the idea of being able to get something local and kind of use that as part of what we were doing really, really hits hit, hit a note with me. And I, um, so that was something we ended up doing more of. Um, we worked. Um, on two of the, our biggest barrel aging programs, worked with two distilleries, one uh, Bruclade from Isla, who at the time were just kind of making it big. They were the first ones to sort of move away from the traditional old labels. They had those bright blue bottles and they were trying to do something a bit more interesting. Craft whiskey, if you will, I guess. Um, and then also with Tomatin, who were like our nearest distillery. Um, we did one really exciting project where I took the brewery van down one day after, the, after work. Um, I stood and I watched them empty some sherry casks, some bourbon casks, and some whiskey casks, lobbed them in the back of the van, took them back up to the brewery, obviously poured out whatever remained in the barrels after the emptying and made our own little special uh, brewer's reserve of that. Um, but the, the, the chance to kind of work with those flavors and see what differences we can kind of infer with the beers using those uh, contacts was really, really important to me. Um, and then again, with another side was um, working with different lagering techniques. Our biggest selling beer up there was Blonde, which I believe is still our biggest selling beer. But um, it was originally had started out as a pale ale. People had started using it as a lager and replacing lager taps in a lot around Edinburgh, certainly in Inverness. And um, we then sort of tried to push that into a proper lagering phase where, where we could. And yeah, that was really important to sort of my learning about development and beer growth and, and how all of those subtle flavors changed and the little things that you really sort of look for in beer these days. In the wider world again, we're looking at the total UK breweries. Uh, in 2011 was 943, give or take. I do apologize for these numbers. They're kind of lifted from a couple of different sites. So I know that there's some sort of d debate as to how accurate they all are. But um, soon after, the following year in 2012, UK total breweries passed the thousand mark for the first time in a very, very long time. And I remember having a discussion with the owner of the brewery on the day um, where he was like, this is, it's totally unsustainable. Think of all the competition. It's crazy. No one's going to be able to keep up with this, but what did he know? You know. Um, we started to see lots more of sort of this, I think the first wave of larger craft breweries really coming to the fore then. So Brewdog had obviously kind of made a big name for themselves with stirring up things with the papers and with the press uh, but the, this year they moved to Ellen and where they moved up from 
what I think had been a 10 barrel plant to a 100 hectolitre plant. And that, that, I think that was a real big step in forward for the, for the uh, crop beer market really. Um, also Camden opened in 2010. Around that time as well, we saw some breweries who would, come, who would uh, become to be much more important in, in the scene. Uh, so Beaver Town in 2011 made their first brews and Magic Rock in 2013. So then 2013, um, my wife and I decided to get married and we were just uh, realized how far away we were from sort of all of our family. We, we, my family were obviously all still in Ireland, the house I grew up in, and, um, but we drove down to see her family in Nottingham one day from Inverness and it took us longer to get there than it would have taken us to check into the airport, fly to Ireland and drive up to my family's home. So we decided if we were gonna get married, it was more than likely at some point we may have children and we might actually like some sort of familial support near us. So we decided to move back to the Midlands was kind of on the cards. And just luckily around this time, uh, JK, uh, James Kemp, sorry, who, who was head brewer at Buxton at the time had given us notice in. Um, myself and a few of our friends had been really big fans of the Buxton beers. Uh, Axe Edge and Wild Boar in particular were our real favorites of ours. So I was really excited at the opportunity and Luckily, they, they were happy to have me on board. So, um, yeah, this was kind of a big, big step for me, I think. Whereas at Black Isle, we were a little bit more controlled about sort of the beers we were, we were making in terms of what the local market was open to. This kind of dropped us into another field where you could get away with a lot in Scotland, but all of our deliveries were a minimum of three hours away in Edinburgh for the most part. So it meant we were kind of near the heart of the scene while still pretty much living in the middle of nowhere, um, which was a, a big thing for me and my wife at the time. Um, personally, the, the change for me meant we had um, my, my first opportunity to really brew without restrictions on the ingredients we get hold of. Obviously at Marble, a lot of the stuff we had done was organic. At Black Isle, everything was organic. So, the, you know, ability to sort of get hold of it, especially at that time, American hops was nigh impossible. I remember sort of in my last year, Simcoe for the first time was starting to become available organically um, and a few other sort of hop styles coming in. But um, it was such a breath of fresh air to be able to sort of buy the best of what was available and have the full palette available to me as well. Um, and I think this is really where my sort of, my, my style of brewing developed, if that's not horribly pretentious. Um, but I really felt like I was allowed to sort of brew the beers that I would really enjoy. So as part of that, we, also were then able to buy a lot of non-traditional beer ingredients, which otherwise would have been restricted by the organic certification. So as part of that, a lot, a lot of kind of different beer styles developed. Um, we really started to work a lot with sour beers, fruited beers and imperial stouts. And th these were kind of opened up a little bit by, by our access to ingredients again. But it also meant we got to play around a lot more with bacterial clean and also wild yeast fermentations so that meant, meant our, the palette of what we could do was really, really broad. Uh, and it meant that we, we felt like we could make anything if we really put our minds to it and we really wanted to get down to it. And on top of this as well, we then, to further sort of the things that I'd taken from my barrel aging experience at Black Isle, we'd also then had access to sort of many more barrels because we weren't so worried that the distillery also had to be organically certified or that we were kind of adding anything from that that, that would mean that our beers couldn't then be classified as organic. In the wider world again, we're looking at a total UK brewery at this point of 1,490. So we can really see that you know, people were really, really feeling what was going on in the industry. They could really see the growth and they could see the development of it. So many people who had kind of just 
wanted to get out of their office job and go and make something and really wanted to get their hands on their products, you know, took the plunge and dived in there. And yeah, I think for the industry at a time that there was maybe never a better choice than there was at that point. Um, some of the big things that, that hit in around then as well. Um, the Rainbow Project was initiated in 2013. Uh, that was developed originally by Siren Craft Beer. Um, and we were very lucky and privileged to be invited along to, to, brew, with the, to brew with them and, uh, and brew for the project. Uh, the first year, it was initially seven UK breweries. The following year, we did, it was seven UK breweries paired up with seven European breweries. And then the year after that, in 2015, seven UK breweries paired up with seven US breweries. And it was a real, I think to be honest, like I, I probably owe a fair part of my career to Ryan Witter, who was head brewer at Siren at the time for that, for involving us and getting us along. Um, I think that then we started to see the first hazy IPAs. I had a bit of a debate with everyone at the brewery yesterday about when this really happened. We were kind of like, there was a bit going on in the US with it. Um, but it wasn't so widespread in the UK, or certainly there were very, very few in the UK. I think the real opening of that was in, um, I think about 2013, you start to see a few drip through. 2014, Cloudwater opened, and I think maybe they were sort of six months open before they really sort of pushed into the fully murk heavy beers that they became much more known for. Um, on a personal note around that one, we had done a brew off uh, Fata Morgana for Omnipolo at Buxton. We used to do a little bit of contract brewing alongside a lot of the collaboration stuff that we did with them. Um, I remember having a conversation with Henock when he, he messaged us and was like, okay, you're okay brewing this style and this is kind of how the recipe should look. And I was just looked at it and I'm like, Henock, there's, there's no bittering hops in this. What, what are you playing at? He's just like, no, no, just trust me. That'll be fine. And for the first time we brewed it, I was like, I'm not doing that. But I end, ended up using some uh, LCO2 extract to just give a little bit of sort of base bitterness because I was so unsure of the style at the time. That was like, I don't know how this will work in any way. But what the hell do I know? So um, the big beer, um, and I think this was also the point where big beer really started to take notice and really wanted to get more and more involved in, in craft beer. So in 2015, Camden Town were bought out by InBev. And also in 2015, Sab Miller bought Meantime Brewery, showing that the market was really starting to change and people were really starting to look elsewhere other than their sort of traditional mom and pop larders to, uh, to satisfy their thirst at the end of the day. So uh, this takes us a little bit step cl closer to the end. Um, so I moved over to uh, Salt Beer Factory in 2019. Um, at this time, I kind of uh, felt like I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in the industry and really sort of developed the, the things that I wanted to do. But I felt a little bit of Buxton as well. I was still kind of been driven by what the market wanted and without wanting to be completely selfish and an asshole about it, I just kind of thought, okay, well, I, I, I kind of see that the things that I think will, will kind of move us forward and the things that, things that I, I can really do with, with the brewery. Um, my move up there in, in 2019, we had a real push for lower ABV styles and beers. Um, it was something very important to me that because the brewery was in a tap room, I wanted people to be able to come. And because we weren't in a big city center and not on a main train line, I was aware that people would have to drive up. And I'd, I'd like the idea that we could, people could come to us, have a third of a few different beers and still be able to drive away happy, have some food from the brewery and, and like really sort of get into it that way. Um, so at that point, we really had, had a push on our core beers. Um, our core beer range at that time, I think was six different beers five of which were hazy IPAs and um, 
I'd learned at this point that we could just take the bittering hops out and be quite happy with what we got at the end of it. Um, so as part of that as well, so that with the core beers kind of developing, although they are in a range from sort of 4% up to 8, um, we obviously wanted to keep ourselves fresh and new by, by um, keeping on with um, sort of new beers and new, new interactions as well. The Vermont series of beers was launched, which is uh, like a little play for us where we use our house yeast um, and try sort of, although they're all labeled as single hop beers, they're all blends of sort of various, you know, various hops to kind of looking at those flavor balances and looking at, at obtaining like real individual flavors every time we can. Um, then on, we became a little bit more selective about sort of the collaborations and, and, and the people we work with. So we, we have worked with North and, and quite a lot of other big brewers in the UK. Um, and we're really proud of the people we work with. And one of my other things is kind of that I've always liked, I really always want to help kind of the smaller guys come up. You know, if there's someone I see with a bit of a spark in their eye, I, I like to kind of get them in and maybe daddy them a little bit. That might be my old age showing somewhat, but to come in and kind of give them a little bit of help and advice wherever we can. Um, but then to sort of balance that, we also do the Hexagon series of beers, which is kind of like the other end of the scale, really, whereas they're not all high ABV beers. The majority are either higher ABV, sort of really out there flavors, barrel-aged, mixed fermentation. Um, and, and that's kind of one of my proudest things is to, is to keep that going alongside all these core beers that we've become known for. Um, so looking at, at the, uh, the wider spectrum in the UK, total UK breweries now is about sort of 1,750 was kind of the number I've, I've come up with. Um, around this time, obviously the biggest thing to sort of hit the industry and hit everyone's industry, I guess, was COVID that landed um, in the start of 2020. Um, it, it, obviously, you all know you were all there, um, how, how much it impacted what everyone could do. Obviously, there was no mixing at the brewery. On a personal note, I was up, um, we went down to, to just two members of staff. So I was working 2 a.m. to midday every day. And then Ned, our M, who's now our MD, would come in at midday until six and do all the web shop orders. So obviously we had to completely change tack, completely look at the difference of what we could do. Um, one thing we never did was really discuss reducing our hops or our, you know, the costs of the beers. Although we obviously we looked at trying to sort of get them to the customer at the best cost we possibly could. We didn't want to reduce what we felt the beer should be by trying, by diminishing them or taking something away without really considering what the impact of that would be. Um, so obviously, during all of that, um, for everyone, obviously, there was a massive shift in their working culture, and, you know, with either people working from home or being furloughed, also meant sort of the rise of supermarket beers again. Something that had been going on for obviously a few years, supermarkets have been trying to sort of increase their, their range and increase the, the sort of different styles and things that, that they have access to. But um, I think a knock-on of that has been kind of, Obviously, more people have got more used to sort of drinking at home, but we'll, we'll come to that again in a bit, I think. Um, slightly for us, it meant a sort of a swing back to more core beers, although we did sort of six months in decide that keeping some new stuff ticking over was a more interesting way to keep the brewery running and keep people interested in what we were doing. We, we really concentrated on our core beers and making sure that they were as good as they possibly could be that everywhere you pick them up. But there was a... A few other things that were running along with that. Then there was obviously like sort of a move to our lower, lower ABV things, I think, that ran with it. But then 
on the back end of COVID, obviously things opened up again. People came out, started coming out of their little caves, and um, the industry's been hit with several big knocks since then. So we had the CO2 crisis uh, last year, where overnight the price of CO2 went up something like 3,000% overnight. Although it was a slightly short-term thing, it really stung a lot of breweries and really hit, hit a lot of people really in the pocket. Um, again, the energy crisis and cost of living for everyone meant that people didn't have as much money to, to go to the pub, even though the pubs were reopened. Um, so all of these things have kind of made life in breweries a little bit more difficult. And then obviously there was following on the back of a lot of that, the Me Too movement in beer, which something that was long overdue and something that really needed to be addressed was that for a long, long time, a lot of the beer industry was kind of the middle class white boys club. Um, and I think something that, that came out of it was, I mean, on the bad side of it, the only independently, independent brewery run by a female she felt the need to step down because she got named in a few incidences that had gone on, which was awkward because that was a company that I had worked for and I knew her very well. And, you know, I won't go too deeply into that, but, you know, in the wider beer scene, I think whereas I had a bigger impact in America, I think the knock-on in the UK was actually fairly slim and it, I don't know, some people seem to get demonized by it. Um, but at the same time, it did open a lot of people's eyes and make them think about sort of the people who were around them and, and what they were what they were doing and who they were brewing for. And that was something that we had considered in the years, but maybe never in sort of the depth that we really should have. So it really sort of opened our, opened our eyes and, and made us sort of reassess where we were, what we were doing and, and our hiring processes, all those kinds of things that, that really just needed to be looked at. So we were just doing a little sort of analysis of, of where we personally are now, but I think this kind of extends a little bit to, to the wider industry as well. So we're saying the core is king at the moment. We've certainly found demand for one-off beers has really sort of decreased. Demand for higher ABV beers has really decreased. Um, so our lower ABV, and it kind of worked very nicely for us in terms of like our, I mentioned about our Vermont sessions and our core beers being sort of lower ABV. It's worked very nicely for us in that we've not really had to change too much of what we, what we did. I know some breweries have really had, an, it's really impacted their sort of sales and performance and, and, and how they approach brewing. But touch wood, it's not a mess of too much just yet. Um, but on top of that, I think something that, that's come up that's been a real positive has been sort of a resurgence, a resurgence back to more traditional styles. So I think all of you may have on the table uh, Golden Ale that North had brewed with JW Lees. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we brewed uh, Mild with JW Lees using their house yeast. I know Magic Rock have recently released a Mild um, and you're seeing more and more sort of bitters, milds, best bitters appearing on the bar again. I'm personal for that. Like I, th I think a wide range of styles being available is a much more healthy way to look at the industry. But on top of that, the pressures that all of kind of the points I made on the last slide uh, have really put pressure on pubs. Um, which you, we, we've noticed certainly in our bars now from speaking to other people in the industry, they've also noticed the reduced footfall um, on the day to day, a lot less predictable kind of customer base as to when and where people are going to come in and come from. Um, more and more people drinking at home due to sort of availability and price of supermarket beers and also the recession that's meant that they don't have as much money in their pockets to be as free to spend what they'd like on sort of different beers and 
eight to 10 pound cans of double IPAs. I'm in no way knocking those styles. They're, they're some of my favorites, but that, that's just kind of the feedback we've had from customers that they're the ones that they've seen sort of falling. And the really saddest one for me really is brewery closures. We're sort of looking at the numbers of this over the last few weeks. And in 2022, we think there were 86, give or take, brewery closures. Um, on top of which, we've heard more and more of different bars, different outlets who've been really struggling and had to, had to take that step away. Um, so obviously, that, that's never a positive because no matter how many breweries there are, you want to see the other people succeed because the idea, uh, the idea I've always held is that the, the sharing of ideas and the sharing of more, more people in the industry means that you know, there's better access, means better growth, means better kind of development of styles and flavors. Um, so no one wants to see anyone go downhill and no one wants to see anyone fail. Um, there's a lot of market pressure there. Like I mentioned before, the, CO, the cost of CO2 going through the roof, energy crisis, the price of malt went up 30% last year. Luckily, hops have stayed relatively stable, but everything else around them has gone up and delivery costs and all of those little things that just add up and add up really put pressure on people, especially those in sort of more isolated areas, to, to ha have to really look at their numbers and make sure that they're doing the best to keep their brewery running. Um, and then in 2023, um, I'm not sure entirely how accurate this is. It was an article I was reading a couple of days ago that reckons there's already been 11 closures this year and um, some amazing bars like the, the Murcock up near us. Um, you know, that was offering an amazing selection of Belgian and British beer. Um, I've had to close their doors and it was one of the best eating pubs in the UK, as far as I can say. So <clears throat> I think from my point of view, the thing we have to look at is really what we as consumers can do to kind of help out around that. If, with bars finding difficult to get people in the doors, you know, as best you can, like I, I'm not saying bankrupt yourself, but you know, if you have a few extra pounds and you want to go down and see some people and you want to go and kind of socialize, go down your local bar as often as you can. Eat out when you can. Like, I, I know it's kind of a, a non-essential expenditure, but good times are had doing these sorts of things as well. It's not just for the bars. It's You'll also find... I think one of the things I really struggled with sort of after COVID was actually getting out of the house again and not, like not feeling like paranoid about everyone around you, you know, and while, while the atmosphere is a bit more relaxed now, you know, I think it's a prime time for people to get back out and, and try and visit. Also, your local breweries, like, come down. Ta tap room days are amazing at places like this. If, if there's a brew pub or, or a local tap room or bars supplying good beers, I think it's important that people kind of spend that little bit extra money just to uh, make sure that the businesses that they love and the beers that they love are still there in a few years' time. So, is it? Yeah, Cheers, thank you very much. The Brewers Journal Podcast is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by Tim Sheehan, sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. The executive producer is Rory Harris. And special thanks to Colin Strong of Salt Beer Factory. Beer Factory.